and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, we are recording, as usual, at the Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in West Hollywood, California. Um, as we record this, there are, of course, been horrible wildfires plaguing most of Southern California. And, of course, our hearts go out to people who are affected in this area. There's a lot of people in the entertainment business affected because these areas stretch from Malibu to Santa Clara. And then there's separate fires that are happening up in Northern California as well. Um, I think if there's anybody who's got any questions about the effects of um, climate change, this should be a eye-opener because on the East Coast we have, of course, um, record cold in places as far south as Alabama. And we're having a sort of austerity with our um, precipitation and high winds in on the West Coast. And people can point to things and say that, you know, weather is always unpredictable. But actually, weather is about as predictable as it's ever been at this point in time due to the technologies that we have. And if we're going to listen to the people that can predict the weather, they're saying that climate change is real and that there are things that we can do to keep it from getting worse, although the fix is kind of in that we've passed that point of no return. But I'm not going to get on an environmentalist kick. I mention it specifically because uh, that has affected some of the guests that we had lined up for the next couple of weeks who have had to relocate and tend to things in their own camps. Now, um, Pod Sequentialism is, of course, also and most primarily an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism exhibition and art catalog, which was the first survey show of modern comic book art and specifically one to put context to the various roles of writer, penciler, inker, letterer, and colorist. And while most of the pieces in the show were black and white, uh, we, we did want to showcase how production has changed in this short window of the 25 years that really categorized the um, modern or dark age in comics. And if it hadn't been for that, there wouldn't be this. And also we want to discuss Gallery 30 South. It's actually going to be a big part of the focus of today's show because Star Wars previewed last night and I did get to see it and I am under a review embargo as is everyone who attended the screening so I can't discuss specifics even though this episode will air after the film opens. Um, it's going to be so soon after the film opens that I don't want to have any spoilers in this in this broadcast. That and, of course, my uh, producer, Engineer Mason, has not seen the film yet, and it would be really crappy for me to talk about plot points in the movie when I know that he hasn't seen it. I, I will say this, and this is um, the, the, my biggest takeaway from the film, and I think the film is extremely good. I think that they've got the right guy for the franchise. I think the last two films have been incredible, actually. I think that, you know, the... Um, the prequel of sorts to episode four was, in my opinion, one of the two best films in the franchise, and, and I'm leaning towards it being um, number um, one, but uh, this film is also right there, just really, really incredible. Gotta give it up for Mark Hamill, who I think really brought the chops for this one. I would compare his performance to um, Anthony Hopkins as far as the level of intensity in his ability to say a lot by saying very little. Um, lots of facial control, lots of body language control. Um, and he just carries himself like an elder statesman. And it's absolutely his best performance since Trickster on The Flash. 
TV series, I think it's better. I think he has benefited from his maturity as both an actor and an individual. Understand that a man as wealthy as Mark Hamill doesn't really need to take movies. And so um, the fact that he has come back into this franchise and is such an important part of it is testament to his growth as a performer and his ability to connect with the other people on screen. What was missing from the three official prequels in the canon episodes one, two, and three was that connection between individuals on screen, even though they had a higher caliber perhaps of actor and that there were more known actors on screen. And uh, with this film, you've got kind of a mix. There's people that we know. We know from um, lots of different places. Uh, some very surprising people in some of the roles in the movie that you would never expect to maybe be in a Star Wars film. I think part of this whole Disney purchase of Lucasfilm means that you're going to have that type of expansion. We're going to continue to have a lot of uh, surprise performers in the movies. I highly recommend that you go out and see it. If, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a Star Wars fan anyways. And um, which brings us to the subject at hand. One thing we've been talking about a little bit, dropping hints about it in, in some of the previous episodes, is an exhibition that is currently at Gallery 30 South that will remain up throughout the month of December and January, and it has a very direct Star Wars connection. The artist is a man named Ricardo Mayer. Uh, Ricardo is from a very prominent Italian family. He grew up in the area of Ferrar, which is a very historical, in, in terms of the arts area of Italy, it's um, not unlike Florence in that it was the center of particular arts and crafts, um, more fine art than craft, but uh, specifically lithography for centuries. And even incredibly celebrated lithographers like... Um, well, I mean, you've got um, Franz Kaiserman, for instance, and Franz Kaiserman. Um, there are three Franz Kaiserman lithographs in this show with the caveat that every piece in the show from this um, collection from the Mayer family was damaged um, when the, the matriarch of the family passed away. It, it fell to Ricardo and his sister to catalog everything in the family's collection. Now, they've been in, in the same house for several centuries the villa itself is over 500 years old and the collection is museum level and i'm not talking about american museum level i'm talking about european museum level in that there are incredible pieces in the collection that cover a very very wide berth of the renaissance in the duchy of ferrar and you're talking about ties to the bonnet school um you know Mantua, Venice, Lombardy, Florence, and uh, in the late 15th century, uh, Ferrara was also pretty much the capital of engraving in Italy, and of course Italian engraving, and especially engraving on silver, is one of the things that um, you think of when you think of Italian crafts, Italian leather, Italian silver engraving. And so, um, you know, you're talking about um, Fra Bartolomeo, and Titian, and Bellini, and Dossi, and Raphael being in this collection. So when he came across some damage pieces that were attributed to the Guido Reni school and the, um, the Ferrari school and these um, Franz Karzeman uh, lithos that I, I mentioned, um, they're by most standards, you know, incredible fine art, classic masterpieces. But by comparison to the 
majority of pieces in the collection, it falls a little bit towards the lesser end of that particular spectrum. In other words, if you're at the Louvre, it's hard to not think of the Mona Lisa, even though there are incredible pieces by um, you know Botticelli and Raphael and, and, and other people. But by definition, they are all lesser than this most famous piece, the Mona Lisa. And regardless of whether you consider it to be the greatest painting of all time, and I would argue that it isn't, but that um, its place in history is cemented as, you know, the most recognizable artwork in the world. And so I mention this because when Ricardo took these damaged pieces, and you're talking about pieces that have probably suffered from exposure to the elements in non-archival storage for centuries, so pieces from the 16th century through the 19th century, he took them to a conservator in Rome, and the conservator told him when he inquired about the cost of repair that it would cost more than the value of the pieces um, to do the actual restoration, that it, that it wasn't worth it to do it, and that these pieces, while by modern standards um, are considered classics, that they, they didn't really deserve, perhaps, um, a luxurious expense, sometimes and quite possibly going into double the, the value of it repaired to go ahead and do so. When you're talking about damage to centuries-old media, you're talking about moth-eaten paper on a lithograph or um, standard wear and tear on a canvas and how paint can just completely chip and peel off if that canvas hasn't been preserved well. It will age. It will age incredibly to become incredibly brittle. So what... Ricardo did is he decided to move ahead with this idea of using these paintings to integrate into this high concept idea that he had had because he himself is a conceptual artist. Um, he's got a he's got a year on me, so he was born in 1970. Uh, he's an, an architect and had um, mainly been a self-taught artist but not an uneducated artist and there's a big difference between being an outsider or a autodidact um and you know the fact that you can be educated but um but untrained and so he definitely falls into that last category so he had also probably studied with um his his mother's painting instructor a guy named um, emmanuel taglietti and so he used these pieces as the basis for this grand idea which was to do a mashup of these ancient religious paintings and uh, pastoral landscapes with pop culture. And so the subjects of these paintings, which remain in the domain of classical landscapes and portraits, are a blend of, I guess, the pure act of painting and art performance because you're talking about painting Star Wars characters into late Renaissance, early Rococo, Baroque paintings. And we'll have images of these on, on the site, and we'll have them on, on Facebook as well and, and on our social media to give you kind of a gist of what we're talking about. They're incredible. You know, there's um, a piece that, you know, immediately springs to mind is this Guido Reni school painting, um, Escape from the Gliese 832, which is, you know, um, the idea of the escape to Egypt and, you know, saving the... Um, saving the Christ and Darth Vader has been painted in place of Joseph in the classic Christian lore and this piece which is about 49 by 68 inches so it's rather large 
is it was you can see when you see it in person how incredibly old and incredibly brittle it was before this other layer of paint and then a sealant was placed on top of it because if that wasn't done then it would continue to degrade and fall to pieces now it's you know someone had asked me about this because the idea of of maybe in some people's words desecrating a classical work of art would borderline on criminal and i think it's one of the arguments that we can have whether you're talking about a modern piece and you talk about appropriation and this isn't really appropriation because you're talking about pieces that are long past um the lives of the creators um long past any um, possible area of copyright infringement and that type of thing but that because you're utilizing another artistic source to build upon it is inherently a type of applique or a type of assemblage and if you were to try and preserve these pieces just by you know sealing them then you could never go back and actually restore them anyways so once that has been done once you are to stop the aging process by glazing or polyurethane or any type of sealant the um you've you've already stopped the possibility of that piece ever being able to be properly restored uh there are certain glazes that could be then peeled back but the act of doing that on pieces this old would cause further damage than the damage that was already in place at the time that the judgment call was made that they were so damaged that they would be better served by this kind of new mashup of of modern and old and i mean they are really really incredible and the the level of painting on these you know um this this conceptual idea by ricardo mayer and this this um technique um, from the work of Emmanuel Taglietti, um, you can tell that this guy is of the classic Ferrari school. You know, that one of the reasons why, and I've discussed this several times on, on, on this program, that the American post-war art scene is not figurative is because it was recognized immediately that American painters were just not near the level of technical realism of Italian, French, Dutch, and uh, Flemish schools, you know, and we're seeing that now with the emergence of painters in China, that the um, the technical prowess and the, the relative low expense of Chinese painters versus their American counterparts are worlds apart. And there's an argument of whether or not, you know, the, the works created by Chinese artists can be compared because... These artists that work in paint factories generally only work on one or two paintings constantly. You know, they're painting master copies. And so they've mastered the ability to paint like a specific artist and they paint that same painting again and again and again. And of course, if you're just doing a study or a master copy, then it is impossible to compare it to someone who's doing unique, new and exciting work. And so since the wage isn't so great, the painters that are working in China aren't really working on their own thing and aren't in a position to be able to consider it a a fine art so much as they are considering it a way of making a living, a job, you know, a um, an occupation. And there are obviously a lot of lines drawn about the differences between fine art and commercial art. And I think that a lot of commercial art can be recognized as fine art. But I think when you are hired as a laborer, that that's certainly different than um, 
than deciding at the offset that a work is a fine art work and that it is being produced specifically for fine art um, appreciation. Because otherwise, the guy that you hire to paint your house would be able to stake a claim that you can't paint over his work because he's an artist. And this kind of transitions into something that also happened this week, which is that the Supreme Court... Um, heard final argument, um, and it went to 90 minutes as opposed to the usual hour, as I understand it, between the State of Colorado Board of Civil Rights versus Phillips, who was a baker who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage um, celebration. And this... um, this case has become very complicated because one of the arguments being put forth is that aside from it being a first amendment right and of course there's um there's been before an interjection of the idea of a freedom of religion being used um or as a superseding argument over an individual's rights against discrimination and that's kind of the the merit of the cases right there but in order to change the outcome from prior judgments the creativity behind the two the two camps has been to make it about something else and one of the arguments brought forth by the phillips camp is that he is a cake artist that um the argument being made that a baker is not the same as a chef and um one of the judges and i believe it was santomayor actually um asked and put forth the question well isn't the primary function of cake to be eaten and isn't that why people are ordering a cake and you you immediately think of that adage you can either have your cake or you can eat it you can't have both and since at weddings the knife cuts through that cake and the cake does get handed around and eaten that would seem to back up that primary function Um, but she also recognized that there is a an artfulness or a a craft to everything that we do in life, you know, and that we have to make certain divisions. That's where it's going to get dangerous. And I think that the decision of what's going to constitute as art is going to be very far reaching because certainly based upon whatever the decision of the, of the court is, a crafty lawyer working for a publisher or, and I, I mean a publisher of any stripe, be it um, print video, um, streaming video, um, video games, could make the argument that the artists that they're hiring are not artists, but are just um, laborers, um, if, if the decision goes that way. And of course, the opposite side of that could be that now every person who, um, who decides to declare themselves an artist um, may have grounds for preventing someone from denigrating anything they've ever worked on. And so that being the case, there's probably going to be a very long uh, statement issued with the decision, which is not expected until the summer of, of 2018. So while the case was heard this past week for 90 minutes, it's going to take six months to deliberate. So we'll see how that, how that happens, uh, how that goes. But, um, you know, back to the exhibition, I think that it's, you know, I expected that there would be a certain amount of controversy because, as I said, you're taking um, these, what some people would consider if they were, you know, in mint condition, so to speak, uh, masterpieces, and then adding to them, you know, and immediately we think of 
that Spanish um, Eche Homo painting that a local woman uh, tried to repair, and we can throw air quotes around repair, and ended up painting a kind of really um, uh, rudimentary and humorous version of, of a face on top of this this classic fresco. And it was outrage. And, you know, there's certainly been, you know, the very famous um, uh, Shafrazi case where Shafrazi threw paint on... Um, on an object in a museum and was arrested and, and he was declaring it a performance. And, you know, somewhere between the two is, you know, there, there's a lot of leeway. And certainly there's been a lot of protections for, as we, as I started to talk about appropriation artists. But this is kind of a different thing because I think that it also counts as an upcycle because the the pieces were considered destroyed, um, were... Um, Valued, and we're not talking about something that's going to have a sharp increase in price either. So there's been quite a few artists who, in the last twenty or thirty years, have gone and purchased thrift store paintings, and then painted on top of the thrift store paintings. So as a kind of the same type of collaboration without permission. Um, Oftentimes, we don't know if the person who painted the piece that was purchased in a thrift store, maybe it's signed and we just don't know who it is. And especially in the pre-internet era, it was very difficult to, to figure out who had painted pieces if they hadn't become famous. Um, maybe it's not even signed and it's, you know, someone bought it because they like the frame. Um, they take it out of the frame. It goes to a thrift store and um, someone buys it and it's then their property to do with what they please. But um, there have been certain protections issued to certain artists of a certain era. And I would like to bring to the front of this discussion the fact that there are a lot of works by Southeastern African-American self-taught painters that were not considered valuable for decades that have now become worth millions of dollars. And whether or not you're talking about people who bought paintings from Sam Doyle off the Gola Islands, uh, in the Carolinas uh, for $60 painted on tin in his backyard back in the 1980s um, and then following his death in 19... Actually, before his death in 1986, um, he had an exhibition uh, at the Smithsonian. And so um, a very prominent collector staged an exhibition of his work and following that exhibition, Jean-Michel Basquiat traded an entire 1985 show for two Sam Doyle paintings. Um, if we were to look at the value of those Basquiat's today, that would create at least conjecture that since the artist himself considered this other artist's works to be better than his work, that they would carry a similar value. Now, that hasn't quite happened yet, but there has been a sharp increase in price of Sam Doyle paintings over the last um, 10 years. And having exhibited his work before that wave kind of caught fire, um, having worked with a, a private collector who um, has been, you know, a, a tremendous advocate for, for the Southeastern uh, self-taught movement. Um, you know, it's it's been an education in seeing how Doyle and Purvis Young and... Um, you know, Roy Ferdinand Jr. And, and painters, you know, from these areas, from Louisiana, from Florida, from the Carolinas, um, were not appreciated in their day, but are now being appreciated now for the excitement that you get from the special perspective of, you know, inspirational um, painters, people who are working, painting their, 
you know, their daily lives or painting, um, as is very common with outsiders. And outsiders is sometimes viewed as a pejorative term. I don't intend it that way. But um, artists who are working outside of the formal art industry, that uh, they, they tend to paint inspirational things, um, scripture and that type of thing. And especially in the African-American community of the South, there would be a thick thread of religion running through the culture and therefore very likely to, to make it into the work. And Gordon Bailey, who was the curator who who brought those pieces to, uh, at the time, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and has since gotten many of them into places like uh, La Halle Saint-Pierre in Paris, um, the High Museum of Atlanta, and numerous other museums, including the California African American Museum, done a lot of gifting and, and placed a lot of pieces in the right collections, um, that there is a recognition of these. And so... That possibility of someone buying a piece from an unknown artist and painting on it is taken away when you're talking about art that is dating back centuries. And because we know who the prominent names were from the 16th, 17th, 18th, and, and even 19th century, the, um, the possibility of a damaged work by someone unrecognized four centuries all of a sudden becoming extremely valuable and any work done on top of it being seen as a desecration is pretty much a, um, a non-issue. And and so whether you're talking about, like I say, there's this one piece in the show that is a, it's called Remote Training at um, Sitchar's Well, and it's this sort of seated Christ figure. And it's absolutely the helmet and the training ball from from A New Hope. And it's, it looks like it's always been there. You know, that the, the technique used in implementing this new imagery has been very conscious of matching specifically to the piece on which it is painted. So some pieces have a higher degree of render and a different medium. So, you know, um, the older pieces are clearly oil paintings. And um, there's another piece called Man Child, which is, you know, a kind of Ben Franklin-esque figure um, from the 18th century, from the Ferrari school, and he's got a um, an X-wing pilot's helmet and visor on, and it's just it looks natural. It's it's really really um, you know uncanny that the, this kind of um, chronoclasm is so fitting. It, it's sort of like this amazing time traveling project of an impossible history with impossible nostalgia. Um, and you know, the, the three Franz Kaiserman prints and a couple of them are actually signed by Franz Kaiserman, um, have a high degree of either mildew or, um, or, um, moth, um, damage so that, um, it would be very difficult to match paper and then match print and match inks to be able to bring it back to, um, to the condition that in a Kaiserman etching would normally be. But in a recent, um, I think it was a Christie's auction, Kaiserman prints, one of the Kaiserman prints that's actually in this show, of course, without the um, addition of a Star Wars um, character, uh, sold for $10,000. And um, Mayer has priced these pieces at $7,7500 each. And uh, one has a Star Destroyer, one has an Adat Walker, and uh, one has the Cloud City of Bespin. And they're just, they're incredible. I mean, they're... Like I say, you look at them and, and I, you can just imagine that, you know, centuries after people are gone, if these pieces are around and some 
alien civilization finds us, they're going to look at these and think, well, you know, the... I guess I guess there have been other visitors before us. You know, uh, we're, we're a little bit late. Don't remember this happening. But um, you know, of course, with it not being photography and it being art, you know, we 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 never honestly know what um, what leads to the um, the idea of of putting brush to canvas necessarily. And so there's a lot of assumption and there's a lot of conjecture when you're talking about pieces that are created in an era without history. Not the case for us right now. Um, another great piece, the Long Lost Hologram Message, is a sort of um, a monk, and it looks like um, a saint who's receiving the Holy Spirit. And you see that the light that he is responding to in this instance is R2-D2, who is showing the hologram, broadcasting the hologram for him to see. So we don't see what's being broadcast because we're seeing it too close, as though we'd be standing in front of where the hologram would be projected. And it's a 17th century painting of the Ferrari School of St. Francis of Paola. And the degree of detail on R2 is incredibly lifelike. It's actually a better painting than the painting of of the monk in the background, of of the saint of St. Francis in the background. But the idea being that if it were from a lens, that the object in front would be in focus and the object in back would be a little bit lighter. So it still bears out this idea of matching perfectly the particular modern iconography with um, with the specific painting that's been chosen. So, um, you know, I'd really love to have been able to have Ricardo on, on the program, um, but the, the cost of doing so uh, with... Um, with uh, with him where he is located was was just not feasible, and the the time difference between us and when we record and where he is at um, just did not really work out. And I know he'd be he'd be happy to be able to explain some of the mindset that went into these, but he did send me some notes, and so um, I'll I'll give you a little a little piece of what he had put forth with this project. And uh, his tagline, I guess, would be an inspiration from the past, an unexpected twist in our present, a proof for future generations. And so he says, the purpose of this project is to integrate into original paintings from the 17th and 18th century, fictitious elements and characters taken from the popular culture of our times, the Star Wars saga. In so doing, we present religious faith and ethics in a postmodern paradigm, largely embedded in fictional reality, through a multi-generational exposure and fascination with successful science fiction movies. We also give back to figurative oil paintings a new path to a concept of truth. You know, and as we had said, in most cases, the original paintings had sustained damage over centuries of, of bad storage, and the cost of restoration exceeded the relative value. So more than just mashups of classical works from antiquity with contemporary pop, there's an element of art preservation and new relevance. Now, I want to point out that um, there is a history of this uh, within the contemporary art world, and uh, specifically in the post-war pre-pop era. And uh, Robert Rauschenberg erased um, a series of Willem de Kooning's drawings, and um, that was seen, you know, those pieces were sold as Rauschenberg pieces, not as de Kooning's, that, um, that his erasing of the piece left marks on the paper and um, helped set a precedent by which an, an artist's alterations can be transformative. And that's kind of the standard by which modern appropriation art is seen, is that it has to be seen as transformative. And, you know, it's good that, um, that Rauschenberg and de Kooning were friends and that they had, um, you know, similar representation. I believe that this would have happened at the... At the um, 
oh my gosh, Galleria and La Cienega, kind of the first real, true, um, you know, when we think of what um, post-war California art is, um, you know, we think of, we think of this place and, um, a great documentary about it too. It'll come to me. <laughs> we talked about it hundreds of times on the show, but um, because they were, they had kind of mutual friends. I think the, the and they were both sort of pushing the envelope of what um, what fine art was. That there was a mutual appreciation of concept, um, but that would have that. Well, that had to exist in this original case. That is no longer a requirement, um, but there can be cases where. Um, if an artist feels like their art has been destroyed, that they can make a claim against the person who has done it. That's most common in in things that are considered architecturally significant. Um, there was a building that was sold recently, and the artist who had uh, sculpted the fountain um, declared that he was due a a payment because the value of the fountain had enriched the va- the value of the property and um that since the the piece was meant specifically for that property by separating it from the two he was due compensation he actually did receive it and so while um the only state in America to have a resale royalty act um has been California uh that that royalty act is not currently in place um it was not um renewed when it expired in 2013 i believe it was uh, although there has been a push to restore it, um, especially to help um, with, as we talked about, you know, um, self-taught artists, people who don't necessarily have representation. And, of course, they would still have to be located and, and you know, in, in the state of California when a gallery reports a sale during the time when the law was in effect, they had to kind of bank the percentage um, if they couldn't find the artist, and it's it's sort of waiting to be collected um, via the state and not via the galleries. Um, a lot of galleries avoid paying it and never got caught, and there hasn't been much to do about it. But um, something we've always been conscious of in the galleries that I've run, and we've always um, done our best to pay, and uh, even have done so after the uh, royalty rule was not in effect in some cases. But, um, and the other specifics, of course, that has to be over $1,000. That's the sell for more than it sold for originally. But, um, you know, with with these cases on the dockets and with these judgments coming across, it starts to create a, a whole new idea, um, you know, an additional paradigm about what constitutes fine art. And just as this Supreme Court case may affect that, there have been cases that haven't even gone to the Supreme Court that have gone to state superior courts that um, are used in um, commercial, uh, not commercial, I'm sorry, but in um, in civil cases frequently. And depending upon what judge you sit in front of and, and how good your argument is, these cases can have very different results. And oftentimes these cases don't actually reach judgment. They get settled before a judgment is reached and um, as a sort of compromise to both parties. So... Um, when you do, um, act, and I, I highly recommend, go to you know, gallery30south.com. Um, check out the show. It's, it's linked on the front page. The show is called um, um, it, The Re- Religious Paintings of the Expanded Galaxy. And um, it's, um, as I said, going to be up all of this month, all of next month. And it's, it's just really extraordinary. If you get a chance and you're in Southern California and uh, you can stop by 
um, in Pasadena and see them in person. It's absolutely worthwhile. Um, the pieces uh, vary between uh, $7,000 and $30,000, so they're not necessarily an impulse buy for anybody. But, um, you know, since George Lucas is going to be opening up his own museum in downtown Los Angeles, very close to the Science Center, um, you have to kind of think, you know, this is the thing that connects those two worlds, that he has a, an extraordinary collection of figurative, illustrative work, and here are these paintings that are that and also connect back to his universe would seem to be a good fit for people who would be fans of that. Um, of course, not just counting the man himself. And um, we're also frequently asked because painters often incorporate um, characters and franchises from popular culture into their work. And... Um, and it doesn't take going back to the Ferris Gallery. I knew I'd think of it. The Ferris Gallery of the 1960s who showed the original Andy Warhol, uh, Campbell Soup Can show, um, to realize that as long as something is painted and isn't done in a grand edition, uh, it can be seen as either um, social commentary or satire. And uh, social commentary has become a more frequent uh, defense point than satire because... Uh, you can still pay tribute to a thing and um, and profit from it if what you are saying with it is transformative beyond what the original thing said itself. So another controversy, of course, is people at Comic-Con making money, um, drawing characters that are not their intellectual property. Now, if each drawing is unique then there's a foot to stand on in defense of it. Um, and one could say that you might even be enriching the brand of, of the intellectual property by um, providing an alternative and a celebratory example of why it is iconic. Um, I don't think any company wants to argue that their properties aren't iconic. That would um, make the property less valuable, and especially when it comes to a sale or a bankruptcy that if they have made an argument that the characters aren't iconic, then the value of what they can recover in bankruptcy or um, in a sale is is lowered. Um, but there is a huge difference between an individual work of art and an edition print, so that if somebody is producing edition prints of works that are owned by somebody else or produced by somebody else, as is often the case at Comic-Con, um, then it is really impossible to kind of uses defense any type of transformation and it is really just uh you know using a copyright um and it can be a hard walk to line um certainly there are a lot of people that work in disney iconography and now that disney owns marvel comics and the disney franchises and star wars um it's one company with a lot of ips and um of course we saw recently also this week discussion of disney purchasing outright a huge portion of 21st Century Fox. So interestingly enough, as Fox was the company that first produced Star Wars and Disney bought Lucasfilm um, a couple years ago and so own a property that was once a Fox property, there's been a lot of discussion about what will happen with the X-Men and all the mutant franchises, which could now very possibly enter the Marvel Universe. And as a fan, of course, you're happy because you want to see you know, it, it's too late to happen now, but it would be great to see, you know, Wolverine in in the um, Infinity Gauntlet series, you know, or in the Fantastic Four who played such a prominent role in the comics. Um, and, you know, us as fans realizing that the, while the, 
they've sort of been getting it right lately with um, with the mutants to an extent. Certainly with the Logan film, um, certainly looks to be the case with the new mutants movie. Um, not so much with the last um, X Men movie, but I like the previous one. That um, the the standard bearer of the Marvel legacy is is Kevin Feige, and if he is able to put his magic touch on the Fantastic Four and, and, and finally do it right, as I think a lot of people would argue that it has not been done right yet, then you're talking about bringing incredible value not just to that franchise, which has lied dormant and, and relatively valueless for a long time, but to fans, you know, people who grew up on it and people who have seen it done not so well and would like to see it done really, really well. But there's also that other argument, which is the danger of one company owning so many intellectual properties that it it really is kind of a monopoly. You know, as it refers to fandom, as it refers to science fiction and fantasy, um, you know, will it be possible since Disney has such power to block other films from entering theaters? Could they withhold their product from cinemas that agree to showcase a film that they don't want to be seen? And... Um, that's not paranoia. This has happened. And actually, Disney have a special deal, which is why their films tend to break box office records, that there is a minimum amount of weeks by which a Disney film must be booked in theaters. And it changes once, um, if, a, if you're a second-run theater and you pick a film up later, it's a little bit different. But the rental rate changes. And so if a theater is willing to agree to that lower rental point in order for the company to claim higher box office numbers, they're going to do that. That's to everybody's benefit. You know, the um, people don't understand, I don't think, that um, the reason why opening box office is such an important thing to studios is because they get about 90% of the take at the box office in the first week, sometimes first two weeks. After that, the split to the theater changes drastically. So the movie theater wants a film to be popular because they get to keep it longer and they make more money on it while the film company, production company, distributor makes much less. So when you see that a film has made, you know, $500 million at the box office, you know, that's... That's the that's the gross. That's not the net. So how that money gets split up depends on what the production company's deal was with the theater companies. And so on paper, you know, one thing I addressed um, quite a long time ago in the blockbuster um, episode that we did early on, I think it was in the first 10 or so episodes, was that there was a formula that ensured almost um, 100% of the time, I think there was one movie that um, that kind of broke the formula that guaranteed that if you spent a certain amount of money on a movie, it automatically made a certain amount of money at the box office. That doesn't mean it was a profitable film. That just means that it, it, it made a certain amount of money at the box office. And so there's that danger, you know, that um, we want to be really sort of attentive to how these deals work out, you know, that because if they allow a, monopol- a monopoly for an entertainment company, then they'll allow monopolies for communication companies. And if that happens, then depending upon where you live, you may not have choice in access to who your um, provider for internet or telephone services, um, which means that you have no control over what news um, you're forced to watch and what news may not get carried on the um, particular 
um, media carrier that that is in your area. And that's become a huge part of the net neutrality uh, discussion in which is being shot down that uh, Congress basically is voting against net neutrality and that allows for bottlenecking of internet speeds for preferred clients. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that this gets turned around and we're hoping that it gets turned around in 2018 if there's enough um, people against this policy, which they tend to not be Republicans, um, that if the House turns in 2018, that we can undo some of the mess that has happened in, in just the past, um, less than the past uh, 12 months. So a lot to digest, I know, um, but here's the takeaways. Absolutely go see the new Star Wars movie. Um, absolutely go see the um, the show at Gallery 30 South of Ricardo Rennie um, implementing Star Wars iconography into classical paintings of the Rococo era. That show is called Religious Paintings of the Expanded Galaxy. Again, um, you can go to www.gallery30south.com and uh, check the preview. You can look at it. Um, you can follow the social media, which is also the same, Gallery30South. We'll be posting stuff on our PodSec accounts, P-O-D-S-E-Q, and on the Pod Sequentialism um landing page probably on meltdown and uh also on facebook so um you'll be able to see some of these as a video of it too of the, of the pieces being worked on and um hope you've enjoyed it the next episode is going to be the 100th episode and so um we're trying to figure out what we're going to do for that hopefully something special um as we said you know some of the people we've been uh, trying to trying to book for this have um you know been dealing with some very serious real life stuff and concerns and um, so it's going to be as much a mystery to us as it is to you, at least for the next week. But uh, we, of course, appreciate you listening to the program. We encourage you to listen to some of the other shows on the Meltdown Podcasting Network. There's some great stuff out there. You know, you got Anime Attic. You've got, um, you know, um, Kind of Dating. There's, there's some really great shows. So um, thanks again. I've been Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.